Well, good morning. Welcome to our sermon this morning, which I've entitled Irresistible, the sequel, Christianity Takes the World by Storm. You know, when you read through the book of Acts, you get the sense that the victory march of a church is irresistible because it's fueled by the power of God. It's a great honor to fill the pulpit here at Fellowship Raleigh today. Grateful to my good friend, uh, Pastor Matt, for inviting me, and also grateful for my precious wife, Marnie, for all her support and encouragement for being with us today. But uh, first, let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing in our time together this morning. Great God, thank you for the privilege for, of gathering here today with, with God's people. Thank you for the gift of salvation and the gift of community. Thank you for your word, and, and today in particular for the book of Acts. Pray that you would teach us this morning through your Holy Spirit and speak your word through my frailty and weakness. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, um, hello again, I'm Andreas Kostenberger, and as uh, Pastor Matt uh, mentioned, I serve as uh, theologian in residence uh, at Fellowship Raleigh. Now, some of you may wonder, uh, what does a theologian in residence do? Well, uh, several things. Uh, in, in general, I serve as a resource for the pastors and elders here at the church. Uh, the church, as uh, Matt also mentioned, provides some office space for our ministry, um, Biblical Foundations, which my wife and I founded, uh, office adjacent to the pastoral suite upstairs, and I make myself available to the pastors um, for any uh, advice or input I can give that might be helpful. I occasionally uh, preach like this morning and, and periodically uh, planning to lead workshops on, or other training events on topics such as um, how to study the Bible. Uh, essentially, I partner with Fellowship Raleigh and try to be a blessing and to strengthen the ministry in any way I can. So this morning, I'm going to uh, pinch it for Pastor Matt. I'm glad he had a great trip to the Holy Land. I was so inspired by seeing some of the pictures uh, and also uh, to Central Asia, but I'm, I'm glad he could be back in time to be with us this morning as we kick off the new series. Uh, now, it's the uh, baseball playoffs, in case you didn't know. And so let me start out with a couple baseball analogies. And I hope your teams did better than mine. Incidentally, all my team I wanted to win lost and already eliminated. So I, I have no team to cheer for. But uh, in any case, uh, my role today is, is kind of like throwing out the, the ceremonial pitch uh, at a baseball game. Or, or think of me as the, the t-ball coach. Uh, just came across some old pictures of my, my son Timothy uh, playing t-ball. Uh, t-ball coach who puts the, the baseball on the tee so the batter uh, can hit it. So this morning, uh, I'm going to treat you to just a, a flyover of the book of Acts, and then uh, starting next week, the pastors are going to guide you through the entire book. Now, if you've been at Fellowship Raleigh for any length of time, if you've learned anything at all, it's that every sermon has to have three points, right? Every sermon has to have three points. Well, uh, this morning, uh, regrettably, I'm going to violate this principle because my sermon only has two points. Now, 
I have a bunch of sub-points, okay? Uh, but there's only it's two points. I confess I tried really hard to come up with a third point, but in the end decided I'd rather uh, go with the two solid points that I had rather than add a, a random third point, you know, just to, uh, to have three points. Now, those, those two big picture points are, first, I'm going to talk about the unique contribution Acts makes to our Bibles, uh, the, the canonical contribution of the book of Acts, and then second, uh, the correct interpretation of Acts. It may sound boring, but it's really, really important. Uh, I believe Acts is one of the most important books in our New Testament, but it's also one of the most frequently misunderstood and misapplied a uh, little bit tricky, and our application will have to be a little bit more indirect and nuanced. We need to be careful, make sure we interpret the book uh, correctly. All right, so let's get started, talk about some of the ways in which Acts makes a significant contribution uh, to our Bibles, canonical contribution of the book of Acts. Uh, first off, the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, as it's also called, is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It's the sequel uh, to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, let's read the first couple verses of the book of Acts together. Uh, Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, uh, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So there you have the two main uh, agents, if you will, of God's work, the Holy Spirit and the apostles. The first book, of course, uh, to uh, which Luke refers to here is the gospel, the gospel of Luke. And Theophilus, incidentally, uh, likely was the Roman government official to whom Luke dedicated the book. In the gospel, Luke says he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, uh, the ascension. So by implication in the book of Acts, Luke will pick up where he left off in the gospel and write about everything that Jesus continued to do after he ascended to heaven. So Jesus doesn't disappear from the scene, uh, even though he's no longer physically present with his people, but he continues to be active and engaged, and he does so in and through the person of the Holy Spirit. So then Acts is the perfect sequel uh, to the Gospel of Luke, which made me think about sequels a little bit. I don't know, any of you like sequels? Uh, movie sequels, for example. What about Batman Returns or, or Spider-Man 2 or Finding Dory? I'm sure many of you could come up with, with better examples. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to sequels, uh, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I'm, I'm old school. I almost always like the original movie better than the sequel. So, when I hear a sequel is out, my first reaction is usually skepticism. You know, will the sequel match up? Uh, so when you think about the Gospel of Luke, you wonder, uh, how could a sequel possibly match the story 
uh, of the gospel, the story of Jesus' virgin birth, uh, the countless miracles he performed, and, of course, his saving cross death and resurrection. Uh, you think there's no way anyone, uh, not even Luke, could possibly top that, right? Well, we'll have to wait and see uh, till we read the book of Acts to find out, but, but let me tell you, it's quite a sequel. Uh, but one thing we, we know, one important implication of the fact that Acts is the sequel to Luke is that ideally we'd first read the gospel. You know, Luke-Acts is a two-volume work. So why start with volume two? It's hard to understand Rocky II if you haven't seen the original Rocky movie, is it? So here's a challenge I have for you. If possible, make time this week to read through the Gospel of Luke. I know it's a long book, 24 chapters, but you know you can do the math how many chapters you need to read uh, per day, about three or four chapters a day. Um, and then you'll be really ready to listen to the series on Acts starting next week. It's the challenge. All right, so uh, first then, as I've said, Acts is the sequel of Luke. Uh, Acts continues Luke's gospel story and extends it to the period after Jesus' ascension. So moving on, the second major contribution the book of Acts makes to our Bibles is that it provides an account of the early Christian mission provides an account of the early Christian mission. Let's take a look at what many have called the key verse in the entire book of Acts, which is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, 8. Uh, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the apostles by themselves are not ready for the mission, right? They first need to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, which will happen in chapter 2. And so Acts 1.8 gives us the template of, or the blueprint of the entire book, the spread of a gospel from the original birthplace in Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, uh, to the region of Judea, and then to Samaria in the north, and ultimately all the way to Rome, which of course is the capital of the mighty Roman Empire. So to recap, Acts is a sequel to Luke, and he tells the story of the early Christian mission. A uh, third important contribution the book of Acts makes to our Bibles is that it, it traces the leadership transition from Jesus to Peter, and ultimately to Paul. So it traces the leadership transition in the early Christian movement from Jesus to Peter and then to Paul. The book starts with Jesus in chapter 1, as we've seen, but then it quickly turns to Peter, who preaches the sermon at Pentecost in chapter 2, and who is the leader of the church in its initial stages. So chapters 2 through 12 are mostly about Peter, though Paul is already waiting in the wings as we read about his conversion in chapter 9. Now, in fact, Paul's conversion is so important that Luke tells 
the account of his conversion as many as three times in, in Acts chapter 9, 22, and 26. And then starting with chapter 13, about midway through the book, Paul takes center stage, and for the rest of the book, Paul is the undisputed leader as he goes on three missionary journeys and plants multiple churches. Moving on to the fourth important contribution the book of Acts makes to our Bibles, Acts tells the story, as I've alluded to already, to the coming of the Spirit and the establishment of the New Testament church. It's a very important difference pre-Acts 2 and post-Acts 2, because now the Spirit has been poured out on all believers, and the New Testament church uh, has been established. Of course, all of this, as Peter uh, preaches, uh, takes place in keeping with Joel's prophecy in the Old Testament that in the last days, God's Spirit would be poured out on all believers. So this also kicks off, if you will, the last days, the beginning of the last days. The event takes place in Jerusalem, so we've seen. Then later, the Spirit also comes to the Samaritans in chapter 8 and the Gentiles in chapter 11, following that blueprint in Acts 1.8. And then there's this one other interesting, intriguing story I'm going to briefly talk about in chapter 19, which is now the fourth time the Spirit comes on a, on a group of people. But this one is a little bit different. The Spirit comes to a group of disciples in Ephesus who previously knew only of John the Baptist's baptism, This is a rather unique and unusual event. There, uh, Paul asks those disciples, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-oh, there's a problem here. And he said, into what then were you baptized? Give Paul some credit, right? He's sensitive to those uh, disciples. And they said, into John's baptism, um, And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And then Luke adds, he says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying as a sign that now they had received the Holy Spirit. Now, what's important here, and I'll have more to say about this uh, shortly, is that these are unique one-time historical events. For example, at Pentecost, the Spirit can be poured out for the first time only once. And we see that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, he says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And we're all made to drink of one Spirit. So uh, how many baptisms of the Spirit can there be? One, right? Like we typically get baptized as believers only once. So there's also one time when we, upon placing our faith in Christ, receive the Holy Spirit. And baptism is a metaphor for that. Uh, we're, we're immersed, if you will, into the realm of the Spirit. But then, interestingly... Uh, and the Bible, by the way, calls that regeneration takes place at conversion as a one-time event. 
But there can, even though there can only be one baptism with the Spirit, there can be multiple fillings with the Spirit. Um, so in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, at Pentecost, it says that the disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And don't be confused here, of course. That first time is, of course, also their baptism with the Spirit, right? But at the same time, it's the first of many fillings. Um, and then we read again, a couple chapters later in Acts 4.31, uh, it says there that when the disciples had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So it seems like in the book of Acts we learn that uh, God chooses to fill the church to overcome obstacles, to preach the word with boldness. And uh, if you're interested to pursue that topic further, I've written an essay uh, a few years back, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, since we have limited time right now. And so you can read up on that. It's posted on the Biblical Foundations website, uh, biblicalfoundations.org. Moving on to the fifth contribution that the book of Acts makes to understanding of God's ways. It records the inclusion of the Gentiles, of non-Jews, which most of us are, in the Christian church. This happened with Peter's journey to Cornelius in chapter 10 and was officially approved at the so-called Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So, you know, sometimes when I teach the book of Acts, I'm thinking, the whole book is important, but certain chapters are more important than others. So in Acts, chapter 2 is important, right? Pentecost. Chapter 9 is important, the conversion of Paul. Uh, chapter 10 is important because of Cornelius, the first Gentile. Chapter 15 is important because that's the so-called uh, Jerusalem Council. And that was very important. Uh, in fact, the inclusion of non-Jews in the church is so momentous in the history of God's dealings with his people, remember Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, that Paul calls it a mystery, that is a salvation truth that was not revealed until New Testament times. And to give us just a little bit of background here uh, as to you know, what happened in the first century, uh, as you know, Jews worshipped in synagogues all over the, uh, the Greco-Roman world. And Gentiles, non-Jews, could join them. They could participate in their worship in the synagogue as so-called God-fearers, or also proselytes, meaning they, they were brought near uh, to God. But uh, in order to do that, they, they had to basically play by Jewish rules. They had to observe uh, certain Jewish customs like circumcision, uh, which otherwise they wouldn't have. Uh, they had to keep Old Testament food laws uh, like the Jews did and to keep the Sabbath, uh, among others. So the Jews were pretty much in control and non-Jews could join in if they wanted to, but they had to do so on Jewish terms. Now, all of this changed with the coming of a spirit. Now there was a level playing field, and Jews no longer had the advantage. Uh, As Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Finally, sixth, 
This concludes my, my first major point of the, the canonical contribution of Acts. And this is so helpful and practical and important for us as we interpret uh, different books in the New Testament. Acts serves as the proper framework for interpreting the New Testament epistles. It serves as the proper framework for interpreting the New Testament epistles, and it gives us very uh, helpful background. Uh, the book of Acts uh, features most of the letter writers in the New Testament. It features James, of course, head of the Jerusalem church, uh, Peter, John, and of course Paul, all of whom wrote letters included in the New Testament. James wrote one letter, Peter wrote two, first and second Peter, John wrote three, first, second, third John, it's easy to remember, and Paul wrote 13. Uh, that's a total of 19 letters, and you're saying, wait a minute, there's 21 letters in the New Testament. Okay, well, uh, the only letter writer not featured in Acts is Jude, who's the, another half-brother of Jesus and brother of James, uh, who was not as widely known in the early church, so he's not mentioned in Acts. And we don't know who wrote Hebrews, of course, but it may have been Apollos, at least that's what Martin Luther thought, uh, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 18. Uh, so if, if Apollos wrote Hebrews, then even <laughs> the author of Hebrews would be mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, in any case, as we read those letters, especially those written by Paul, Acts gives us the backstory of how he planted a given church. The church at Philippi in chapter 16, Thessalonica in 17, Corinth in 18, <laughs> Ephesus in 19. It's like every chapter Paul plants a new church, right? And he wrote letters to, to almost all of those. Um, so as we've seen... Just to recap my first big point here, Acts makes a massive contribution to the New Testament. You might even say Acts is the glue that holds the entire New Testament together. So we've seen Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It records the mission of the early church from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. It narrates the transition in leadership from Jesus to Peter to Paul. It records the coming of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the New Testament church. It also narrates the inclusion of the Gentiles in the Christian movement. And finally, it serves as the framework for interpreting the New Testament epistles. All right, then, let's uh, now move on to our second point. And remember, there's only two points this morning. Uh, the correct interpretation of Acts. If you need any mnemonic aid, right, correct interpretation of Acts spells out C-I-A, right? Correct interpretation of Acts. Um, as I've said, Acts is not only one of the most important New Testament books, it is also one of the most frequently misinterpreted and misapplied. And I think there are several reasons why this happens, and I'm going to help us with that and address each one of them. First, uh, we need to remember that the genre, the, the, the type of literature we're dealing with here is historical narrative. Uh, I've written a book on how to interpret scripture called Invitation to Biblical Interpretation. And there we have an entire chapter on how to uh, accurately interpret historical history, uh, to, to interpret a historical narrative. Now, 
The book of Acts is real history told in form of a compelling story, a consecutive narrative of, of events that happen. Of course, it's selective as well. We don't know everything that happened. Um, so Luke recorded the events that actually happened. All of that is historical and it's reliable, but we can't necessarily assume that everything recorded, he recorded because it's so typical or expected of a church today. You repeat that one more time because this is pretty much the premise of everything I'm going to say for the rest of the message. So in Acts, we read real history in story form. Luke recorded the events that happened, but we can't and shouldn't necessarily assume that everything recorded, he recorded because it's so typical or it's expected of a church today. So you might say that, that's my, my, my second point, sub-point here, uh, Luke's account is descriptive, describing what happened, but it's not necessarily prescriptive, like a prescription, a doctor tells you, you have to take this. So the church has to do this. It's descriptive, but not necessarily prescriptive. And I think that's where many go astray, even some, some cults. Um, so if you're reading Acts on the assumption that everything in the book is recorded to tell the church what to do today, uh, you're in some serious trouble because I don't think it was ever Luke's purpose to provide the church with a, with a church manual or a, a rule book on how to do church. We can observe what the early Christians did and learn from that, uh, but our application will have to be a little more indirect. So instead, Luke's primary purpose is to provide a record of what happened in the first days of the church. Now let's take a look at some of the things that are recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, in chapter 1, we see the 11 apostles casting lots, um, like roll the dice, to decide on who should replace Judas as the 12th apostle in Acts chapter 1, verse 26. So should we today roll the dice or flip a coin when we make an important decision as a church? Uh, I don't think that's Luke's purpose uh, for writing at all. Rather, he simply tells us what the disciples did at that particular point in time. And of course, in that case, I might add, God hadn't yet poured out the Holy Spirit, <laughs> as he will do in chapter 2. Um, or take the series of angelic appearances in the first half of the book of Acts as another example. Um, and, you know, the first 12 chapters are just littered with angels appearing you know, to people, uh, very unusual. In Acts chapter 5, we read that the Jewish authorities arrested the apostles, that's a major power move, and put them in jail. But then, uh, Luke writes, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Then in chapter 8, an angel appears to Philip, one of the, the seven um, first deacons, and tells him where to go. Uh, meet up with the Ethiopian eunuch. And in chapter 10, an angel appears to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and tells him uh, to call for the apostle Peter. Uh, if you keep in count, there's at least three angelic appearances. And then in chapter 12, an angel escorts Peter out of prison 
and this is an incredibly cool story, so I'm going to, just because I love it so much, I'll give you a little more detail here. So uh, Peter is sleeping between two soldiers, and he's bound with two chains, as if one weren't enough, and several guards are standing outside, making sure somehow he can, you know, shake off those two chains. Uh, he, you know, they, they catch him and prevent his escape. Uh, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord stands next to Peter, and the light shines in the cell. The angel strikes Peter on the side and wakes him up and tells him to hurry up and get up. The chains fall off Peter's hands all by themselves, and the angel tells Peter, get dressed quickly, put on your sandals, uh, and then he tells him to put on his coat as well. Apparently, it's a chilly night. And, and to follow him. So the whole time, Luke tells us that Peter didn't think the angel was real. It's kind of interesting too. But he thought he was just seeing a vision. Uh, then after they pass by the first guard and the second guard, right, on their way out of the prison cell, Peter and the angel come to the iron gate, very heavy iron gate, uh, into the city. Now what are they going to do now, Right. Well, the gate opens for them all by itself. You've seen Maxwell Smart, one of my favorite older shows. Uh, opens all by itself, and they go through the gate and walk along the street, and immediately the angel disappears. And then Peter finally, by that time, is fully awake, kind of like me, hadn't had his first cup of coffee yet, and he realizes that he was actually an angel who had just come to his rescue and escorted him out of prison. I mean, that's just an incredible true story, uh, isn't it? Chains falling off by themselves, angels escorting people out of prison. That's the second time, right, for Peter. Remember, in chapter 5, he was one of the apostles. It was the second time, so Peter's kind of getting used to this. It's kind of cool. I'm getting thrown in jail. Angel is going to come and bail me out. Um, now, the question is, and don't forget doors or gates, big iron gates, miraculously opening without anybody actually unlocking them. Uh, should we expect these kinds of things to happen today? I would argue no, uh, which gets us to our third sub-point under this heading here. Uh, because third, it was often not Luke's purpose to tell us what is typical or required of a church today. Rather, he recorded events just because they were so untypical and unusual. He recorded events because they were so untypical and unusual to make us marvel at the power of God in the days of the early church. Let me give you just a couple more examples here um, for those last two holdouts who may, may still not be convinced of, of my main thesis this morning. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, verse 12, we read, uh, Luke writes, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Well, did Luke write this as a pattern for the church of all time? I doubt it. it I think this falls more in the category of don't try this at home. Uh, in fact, if you keep reading in Acts 19, very next verse, verse 13, Luke writes that some other people actually did try this at home. The so-called seven sons of Seba, was a Jewish high priest. They tried to cast out evil spirits in the name of Paul, uh, but the evil spirit replied to them, Jesus I know, 
And Paul recognized, but who are you? <laughs> who are you? And then the man with the evil spirit leaps on top of them. That's just one guy, right? Leaps on those seven people, right? Uh, he overpowers them, and they flee out of that house naked and wounded. So they'd learned their lesson. That's just incredible. Again, I think what we see here is that God uniquely empowered Paul, but not necessarily anybody else here, to perform extraordinary miracles that we're not necessarily expected to duplicate today. Aren't you glad? Uh, let me please give you just one more example here from Acts, uh, next chapter, chapter 20, and this Far and away is my favorite chapter in the book of Acts. Um, the story of a young man named Eutychus. And you probably know the story, uh, but you may not realize that Eutychus literally means lucky. <laughs> because you, right, it's like eulogy means good, you know, and then tike in, in, uh, tike in Greek means luck. So, you know, it, true, sure enough, he was very lucky to still be alive after what happened. Uh, so Paul is with some people on Sunday. They celebrate the Lord's Supper, somebody's home, house church. Uh, and Paul delivers a message. In fact, Paul gets in a roll and preaches all the way until midnight. At that point, Eutychus, and you can hardly blame him at this point, uh, falls asleep. The problem is he was sitting on the windowsill on the third floor, he falls out of the window, dead. Just a minor crisis here. So Paul just briefly interrupts his sermon. He goes down staircase, or however he got down, and he, you know, raises Eutychus from the dead. And then, as if nothing has happened, he resumes his sermon. You would think that's enough for him to say, okay, I think I'm going to stop now. <laughs> Uh, but he resumes his sermon, and he goes on to preach, incredibly, until daybreak. Uh, now, if you do the math, that's at least a 10-hour sermon. <laughs> so finally, when it's morning, Paul leaves, and his friends are greatly relieved. Uh, probably that Paul leaves, <laughs> left, they can go to bed, but also that Eutychus, their friend, is still breathing. So again, what an incredible story. But again, the question is, should we expect pastors today to imitate Paul's example? I hope not. I, I'm pretty sure you want to go home before 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, so, so why then is Luke recording the incident? Because it is so typical and expected of the church today? No, I think because it's so highly unusual and unique, and it, it highlights how God gave Paul, the leader of the early uh, Christian mission, unusual powers um, as a leader um, in the early church. So what does all of that mean? As we approach the book of Acts and try to interpret it and apply it correctly and properly, we should expect to find much that truly happened at that time in history, but that we're not necessarily expected to duplicate today. Now, you might ask, how then should we explain the fact that Acts records so many unusual events? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that leads me to my next and next to last subpoint, uh, number four, which is that uh, as we interpret and apply Acts, we need to appreciate the unique period of time covered in the book of Acts. 
namely the so-called apostolic period. There's a very unusual, unique uh, period, the time after Jesus' ministry, but before the New Testament was written. So if Jesus ascended in around 30, 33 AD, and then the New Testament documents were beginning to be written in like 40 or 50, 60 AD, book of Revelation in 90, right? So let's say it's completed in around 95. So you got from about 33 to 95, it's about 62 years, half a century, uh, and that's what you would call the apostolic period. Um, now, that was a time when the apostles needed God to back them up as true messengers of the gospel and especially as heralds of Jesus' resurrection because Jesus' resurrection is the message. When you read through the book, that is the main content of their preaching, that Jesus didn't stay on the cross, but on the third day God raised him from the dead. And so the signs and the wonders performed by the apostles proved that their message was true and that God really was with them and had raised Jesus from the dead. All right, fifth and final point then, um, sub-point under number two is, um, if you think of the book of Acts as recording the acts of the apostles, you're really missing the real power behind the early Christian mission. In fact, the leader of the early church is not Peter or Paul, but the Holy Spirit. The leader of the early church is not Peter or Paul, the main human characters, right? Uh, but it's the Holy Spirit. So the book of Acts really records the acts of the Holy Spirit in and through the apostles. I don't know about you, but, you know, not everyone, but in my experience, there are some who, who present Paul as this master strategist, kind of the mastermind, right, behind the, the mission of the early church. But, but let's think for a moment. Is, is that really the way Luke portrays Paul in the book of Acts? I don't think so. I'm going to try to show that rather what you see in Acts is that the Holy Spirit is in charge, certainly not Paul, and that the Holy Spirit directs the early Christian mission, including Paul. Starts in Acts chapter 13, where the Spirit directs the church to set aside Barnabas and Paul and to send them on their first missionary journey. And I recently noticed that the Holy Spirit doesn't tell the church to also set John Mark aside. Remember John Mark turned back and went back home and then Paul doesn't take him on the, uh, on the second missionary journey. Uh, I wonder if maybe the church should have listened to the Holy Spirit and just set aside <laughs> the people that he, he told the church to set aside, which were Barnabas and Paul. And incidentally, at that point, it's Barnabas and Paul. And then later, it's Paul and Barnabas. And after that, it's Paul and his associates. <laughs> and so gradually, you know, slowly but surely, Paul is taking charge of the mission of uh, the early church. Um, so again, the Spirit tells the church to set aside Paul. In chapter 13. Then in chapter 16, Luke writes that Paul and his associates went through the region of Galatia because the Holy Spirit had forbidden them, get this, the Holy Spirit had forbidden them to preach the gospel in the province of Asia. And after that, 
they try to go to a province called Bithynia, but again, Luke writes, the Spirit of Jesus, interesting here, he doesn't call him the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to do that. So they go down to the coast, and there Paul has a vision, famous Macedonian call, where he sees a man from Macedonia, Greece, who says to Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. And that's what Paul uh, ends up doing. So when you read this account, and again, I paraphrased it here, if you read in the original especially, uh, you clearly don't get the impression that Paul is calling all the shots, do you? Not at all. Uh, to the contrary, it's kind of like Paul saying, hey guys, let's go over here. And the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 I want you to go over there. And that happens multiple times. Um, so like I said, the leader of the mission of the early church is not really Paul. It's the Holy Spirit. I think there's an important lesson for us here, even if the specific circumstances are unique. It's not wrong for us to strategize and to plan and to, to have a vision and to, to seek to implement it. But we should expect the Spirit to direct us and often even to override our well-laid plans. You know, we're not Paul. Forget that sometimes. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't expect the risen Jesus to appear to us visibly and to speak to us audibly as he did to Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, and we shouldn't expect God to speak to us in audible voice or to direct us through visions, as he did with Paul. Uh, Paul was the founder of Christianity, if you will. It's in a very unique uh, place in the history of salvation. But one thing we, we do, we do have the Holy Spirit living inside of us as believers, and we can't expect the Spirit to direct the church corporately on the basis of God's work, because unlike Paul, we do have a New Testament. Paul didn't have a New Testament. In that sense, we're part of Irresistible, the sequel. In a very real sense, we're living in the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. That's really exciting. All right, uh, I'm done. It's just time to, for a quick recap as I close. Uh, this morning, I talked about two important introductory issues for our study of the book of Acts in the weeks and months to come. Uh, the many ways in which Acts makes a significant contribution to our Bibles, and the importance of interpreting Acts correctly. When it comes to the canonical contribution of Acts, I've argued Acts is the superglue that holds the entire New Testament together. It gives us a sequel to the Gospels, and it sets the framework for interpreting the letters. It tells the story of the mission of the early church, the, the outpouring of a spirit, the establishment of a church, now, with, regarding to interpret, with regard to interpreting Acts correctly, I've argued that the book is historical narrative and that the events recorded in Acts are descriptive and not necessarily prescriptive. It was often not Luke's purpose to tell us what is typical or expected or required. Rather, he recorded many events because they were so untypical and unusual, primarily because those events took place during the apostolic period the time after Jesus, but before the church had the New Testament. And finally argued that the real leader of the mission of the early church was not Paul, but the Holy Spirit. So uh, as I close, let's remember this. 
While much of the book of Acts is unique, as I've argued, the spiritual exploits that we read about in Acts uh, can serve as a mighty inspiration to us today. Because Jesus is ascended and exalted at the right hand of God. And the Spirit who directs our mission is irresistible. The power of God is irrepressible and stronger than any opposition we may face. So as we continue to write the next chapter in the history of the church, uh, let's make sure our trust is in the God who raised Jesus from the dead and who will build his church. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about Irresistible, the sequel. So uh, join us next week and every week as we study the book of Acts in the weeks uh, and months to come. All right, well, let's pray.